Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today's episode is all about celebrating Ballotpedia's 15th anniversary. And joining me now to do just that is our editor-in-chief, Jeff Pelle. Hey, Victoria. How's it going, Jeff? It's great. You know, we're just here getting ready to celebrate the 15th anniversary. So I'm excited to talk about it today. I've started most of my conversations with our staff guests by asking them what their Ballotpedia origin story is. So I figured we could start by sharing a bit about how you came to work at Ballotpedia. I always love that question also. I actually like to ask prospective Ballopedia applicants what I call Ballopedia meat story, which is how do they start to find Ballopedia themselves? Uh, because we all have different origin stories. And mine dates back to 2010, which is a long time ago, which means before I came to work here, I'd never heard of Ballopedia and I didn't know what it was. So <laughs> I had a friend who had familiar relations to our CEO and she said, well, Ballopedia is hiring. Are you interested in a work at Ballopedia? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. What's Ballopedia though first? So it's kind of as simple and awkward and weird as that. I, I heard about an opening for a staff writer job, went for it. And 12 years later, here we are. And as part of our 15th anniversary, we've found some fun and interesting data points we've collected over the years. Can you share a few of these with our listeners? If you know Ballopedia, you know we love re- weird, quirky, and fun data points and tidbits. You'll hear more all about it with Paul later in the episode. But I've got a couple that I really wanted to, to dig into here. Uh, these are the kind of fun tidbits that you might be able to impress someone at a, at a bar or something like that. So we've ha- been having some fun with the number 15 this year. So for instance, what are some elections that had 15 candidates on the ballot? For instance, the U.S. Senate election in Florida this year has 15 candidates on the ballot. Or Santa Clarita's city council at large seat in 2018, 15 candidates on the ballot. Chicago city council ward 20 in 2019, 15 on the ballot. So this is just kind of something that we here at Ballpedia had some fun poking around in our database, just looking for how many races have that many options in front of voters that often. Then the second one that I thought was kind of interesting was ballot measures passed on the 15th of a month. Our database has, and you're familiar with this, Victoria, we've got more than you know 50,000 ballot measure articles all throughout our ballot measure database. They've been approved or denied or rejected on all sorts of dates over the couple hundred years of our country's history. So for instance, in 1970, on December 15th, voters in Illinois certified and approved a constitution ratification question. And in 2001, on May 15th, voters in Pennsylvania approved a question to change the judicial retirement age. So we've had all sorts of very interesting ballot measures that we were able to dig into our database and read about simply by looking for which ones were approved on the 15th of a given month. Then this last one is a really fun one, which is how many elections have been decided by 15 votes? More than you might think. Uh, And we're only looking again at just information and data that we have in our own Ballopedia database right now. But for instance, Montana's House of Representatives District 51 in 2018 was decided by 15 votes. 1840 to 1825. The largest race, and this one really surprised me, Nevada's Clark County Commission District, only 15 votes separated the winner and the second place runner up out of more than 150,000 ballots cast. Some of the smallest ones are small little districts where a race was 53 to 38. (laughs) And that happens more often than you might think. That's a lot of data there. You might want to rewind your podcast a little bit to re-listen to anything you missed. 
Speaking of 15, can you take us back 15 years ago to the early days of Ballotpedia, way back in 2007? I will personally admit that I had never heard of Wiki, Freedom of Information Act, or Judgeopedia until I started working for Ballotpedia in 2019. Can you describe what those websites were and what the early culture at Ballotpedia was like? Yeah. I never heard of it referred to that way. We always just called it Wikifoia. The early days of Ballopedia were, uh, you know, really segmented, I think is, is the best way to put it. You know, having multiple different websites, Wikifoia, Judgepedia, Policypedia, Ballotpedia, the kind of approach was, okay, well, we'll just create different websites based on the relevant topic areas. Judgepedia existed to produce content about judges. And only really after, you know, five or six years uh, in around 2014, did we really realize this works better all in one place? Well, you know, let's bring it all under one roof, Ballotpedia. So that's that's really what the the early years were like, where, you know, we we focused on down ballot issues. Uh, We weren't covering presidential election, for instance, our early years. We focused on unique websites to uniquely answer very specific subject questions. And in fact, going back to 2007, the original impetus for Ballotpedia was just to cover ballot measures. That was the, the first project we had and was sort of the first project for the first several years. The early days were a lot of learning, running around and trying to figure out what worked. That's the kind of simplest way I'd put it. Very cool. Ballot measures obviously are near and dear to my heart. So it's cool to hear that they're the longest running project here at Ballotpedia. Take us through a timeline, if you can, of some of the biggest milestones from then until now. Yeah. So we're going to try to keep this podcast under two hours. So let's see if I can be brief here with this. But really, each year we've had something really exciting going on. So 2010 was when we first started covering state legislatures, state executive officials, and all of their elections. So there are 7,383 state legislators in that first election season 2010 pretty interesting, a big one, if you remember. And we were building up articles on all of the incumbents, all of the candidates. That was our first year doing that. And we've been doing that ever since. 2011, we started covering congressional elections and we actually lost for the 1.0 version of a podcast and really dug into redistricting coverage. Then in 2012, we we really leaned into recall coverage. That was uh, one of the big uh, events of that year was the Scott Walker recall. 2013, we brought in uh, a significant number of content from an, another website called Sunshine Review covering municipal government offices, such as school boards. School boards is, is really big in the news now, but when we were really digging into it in 2013, it, it was kind of an undercovered area in the world of elections. In 2014, we started covering federal affairs. That was a really exciting new project. 2015 is when we merged officially Judgepedia with Ballopedia, kind of rebranded ourselves as the Encyclopedia of American Politics. And that year, we launched our candidate survey. Our candidate survey that's that's unique and is meant to to humanize candidates had more than 4,400 candidate surveys in 2020. And we're we're hoping to get more than 6,000 candidate surveys this election cycle. Just a really great and exciting way for us to help readers understand the candidates who are running on the ballot. Yeah, for sure. Should we keep going or should we just stop in 2015? Because nothing interesting ever happened after that, right? Oh, nothing interesting at all in politics, especially. Yeah. Well, in 2016, we launched our sample ballot tool. And that was, that was a really fun one for us. We've had more than 12 million sample ballot lookups since then. It's just a great way for readers to plug in your address and find out what's on your ballot. So that was the first year we did that. Believe it or not, this was what was so funny to us at the time. We finally covered a presidential election after not covering any in our Ballpedia's years before that. We launched our Pivot County's election coverage after that election cycle, which is looking up the and analyzing the 206 counties that voted for President Obama in 2008, 
again in 2012, and then voted for President Trump. And we've been doing analysis like that ever since then, looking at trends and directionality of, of results in counties around presidential elections. Then in 2017, I think that really interesting internally, we restructured our department. That's always very exciting, and I won't bore any of our listeners with that. But if you've ever worked at any company that's gone through restructuring, you know that that can create a lot of headache, but short-term pain for long-term gain. So uh, we did that in 2017. 2018, we launched our, our newsletter, Heart of the Primaries, which just wrapped up its uh, most recent edition for this cycle. And that's our, our newsletter that focuses on the trends and, and issues in the primary election season. We launched our news website, news.ballotpedia.org, where we publish more than 2,500 news stories each year. And here's where our tech listeners are going to lose their lunch. We only first launched our database in 2018. Everything on Ballotpedia up until then was not in a database. It was just sitting on MediaWiki in plain text markup. Uh, so we finally uh, came into the 21st century <laughs> and launched our own database in 2018. And in 2019, we, we continued to lean into uh, unique newsletters. So we have more than 13 newsletters now that our readers can sign up for. And uh, a couple of them that we've launched in 2019 were one is the Weekly Brew, uh, which is one of our flagship products and it's a weekly summary of our daily brew and uh, the state ballot measures monthly. We're almost there, everyone. Now we're in 2020 and we all remember 2020. What a year that was. The events of 2020 caused us to, like every other organization in the world, shuffle some resources around and think about how we can best contribute. None of us are, are scientists, so we don't know how to actually invent vaccines or anything like that. But what we could do was provide content, coverage, and newsletters to help voters understand what on earth was happening with election rules because they were changing seemingly hourly. When is my election? How can I vote? What are the rules? So we put out a newsletter that we call Documenting America's Path to Recovery throughout 2020 that really helped voters just understand what was the government doing to respond and how was that going to impact their ability to vote in elections. Then last year was 2021. We expanded our municipal coverage again. We began covering elections in the 100 largest cities and the 50 state capitals. We had not been into the cap and all of the capitals yet. Launched more newsletters. And in particular, we had a lot of exciting coverage of school board recalls, which nearly tripled in the wake of the post-COVID world. We released a major study on state Supreme Court justices and their partisanship and uh, what we called dissenters. So where we looked at and studied and analyzed all the different court cases and figured out, you know, what are the coalitions in state Supreme Courts? And finally, now we're into 2022. This year, we've had a really fun and exciting year. We we launched our election administration legislation tracker, legislation.palapia.org, which you and I talked about a few weeks ago, I think, Victoria. Mm -hmm. And we launched this podcast, of course. And we launched a newsletter called Hall Pass. And we've really leaned into something that we call ultra-local elections tracking. There are 585,000 elected officials in the United States, the vast majority of which are very, very local. And covering those elections, which we plan to do in the future, and we'll cover all of them one day, that's very hard and takes a lot of work. So we, we started a new initiative and a new effort this year to do that, and we call it the Ultra Local Elections Project. So now, if you've never followed Ballopedia before, you know how we got here. <laughs> the complete history. And before <laughs> we look at the future, I think it might be a good opportunity to speak to our commitment to neutrality and how that kind of developed over the years. Speaking from personal experience, when you onboard with Ballypedia, you go through a pretty vigorous training on different neutrality concepts, different biases, yeah. and how to identify all those things. So how did that develop over time? 
Neutrality is really hard. That's the simplest way to put it. Like you said, and like you've experienced and uh, like all of our staff go through lots and lots of training, lots and lots of documentation. The first step in being neutral is admitting and acknowledging that it's hard and intent isn't good enough. And that's something we talk about a lot with the, with the articles we produce. One in two voters are going to visit Ballopedia, which means Ballopedia's audience is extremely ideologically diverse. And they're coming at our articles with a very different perspective depending on their views, which means they have to understand and we have to understand that they have had their views represented. So being neutral, putting out politically neutral content is extremely difficult and admitting and acknowledging that is the sort of the first step we think toward neutrality. And that means constantly challenging yourself, constantly retraining yourself, coming up with new documentation to fit new scenarios and new situations. And that took a long time for us to get there. But uh, we, we're we very proud of that. And we, we take that very seriously. Like you are, you have a lot of firsthand aware, uh, experience with that. For sure. I remember when I was taught, like, don't use any adverbs. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Those are pretty biased terms to throw on your writing. So for me, a big part of why we are the go-to source for election and American politics in general is that we have become an authority, but we've also made some mistakes along the way. And I like to always say, like, if you don't fail, you're not trying, right? So we rely on feedback from readers and listeners, elected officials, and our internal housekeeping to correct errors daily throughout the hundreds of thousands of articles we have on site. So could you share some of our biggest blunders, um, like our greatest hits of what what we've done and messed up on? Well, it's too true. We tell our kids that all the time. Mistakes are how you grow, mistakes are how you learn. And, you know, I walked through a whole long list of milestones and and successes for us over the years, but those are only possible because we failed and learned. Cliche, but it's Edison saying that he didn't fail 2,000 times to make a light bulb. He just simply learned 2,000 ways not to make a light bulb. So we've had our own fair share of that as well. In 2012, the website crashed on election day. That was very fun, but we learned a lot from that day. We learned a lot about how we needed to structure our content. We learned a lot about how we need to how we can work together in situations of adversity. And then in 2019, we had a couple of different experiences with projects that we had great opportunities to learn from. So in 2019, a a candidate survey was submitted to us uh, under a, what we later learned was a false name. At the time, we had been just kind of trusting uh, that anyone who submitted a candidate survey was was who they said they were. Uh, so it turned out that in 2019, a high school student made up a fake name, made up a fake campaign website, made up a fake Twitter profile, submitted a fake survey to us. We assumed it was real. We processed it. Didn't find out until CNN reached out to us and, and said, you have four hours to comment about this story. And, you know, in, in the moment, of course, you know, there's some kind of frustration there. But for the long term, this is a great opportunity for us to improve our workflow so we can take this experience experience and improve our processes, improve our systems, improve our policies and and get better and deliver a better product to our readers. So that's one example that we've had to learn from. And we're very happy and proud to say that that's kind of the the culture we like to create at Ballopedia. Mistakes are opportunities to, to learn and improve and build upon a structure. A second situation that we have was a candidate survey that was submitted where a person submitted a survey on behalf of another candidate. But that candidate did not know the survey was submitted on their behalf and it was fake. So that helped us to really improve our candidate verification processes and added a whole nother layer on. So we really just believe in learning from experience. And uh, that's been a, a really core value of ours over the years. 
learning from experience and, and documentation is actually another core value that many of our listeners are not aware of, but we have intense documentation about all of the ways we're trying to innovate the products that we're producing. So hopefully that gives our readers a sense of trust in us. We really love reading about airplanes, don't we? And their manuals, <laughs> but it really is, is a great model to, to work off of. So it applies. Do you have any favorite Ballotpedia memories or funny stories you could share that no one else would get mad at you for sharing? <laughs> yeah, I have got a couple, I think. So this is probably not other people's favorite memory, but we tried a live chat one year and that was weird because live chat ended up basically being a homework helpline for, for students you know, where the, where people would just live chat in and say, hey, I've got this homework assignment and I'm supposed to look up three reasons why this ballot measure should be supported. Can you help me? Which it's on the article. Mm -hmm. I don't know if everyone thought that was fun, but I've always thought that was kind of an interesting experience for us. We do get to do periodic in-person meetings. So I, I got to meet you, Victoria, earlier mm -hmm. this summer, which was great down in hot Dallas, Texas. Over the years, we've taken a number of different approaches to our in-person company meetings. And one year, we were kind of in the stretch of what we would call the phase of VRBOing, I guess. Uh, we were renting houses and just kind of holding meetings there sort of informally. Uh, so I, I happened to rent a house in Harper's Ferry for some other editors and I, and it turned out that it was a haunted house. Oh, nice. <laughs> We, we did not know going into it. And um, let's just say that some of our team members were a little less than thrilled and some of the other team members were a little overly excited for it, for this fact. So Harper's Ferry, which if you've never been, is actually quite beautiful and very close to an, a major national airport in Dulles. So it's an easy place to actually get to. But uh, yeah, the haunted house was uh, an interesting experience for our team. So now we only do hotels. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, we, now we're dull. And what about the next 15 years? Is there anything big on the horizon for us? Gosh, yeah. Um, I only kind of alluded to it earlier, but the next 15 years, really for us, we, you know, we think the sky is still the limit. There are 585,000 elected officials. There's, there's so much politically unknown in this country. And, you know, we think there's a lot of opportunity for us to continue to help the way we call it internally. It's to solve the ballot information gap to close that gap, to make it easier for voters to know who's on my ballot, what is there about our American political system, and how can I best make the decisions that match my values and virtues. So for us, you know, that's growing in, in news coverage, it's growing in our policy coverage, it's growing in the number of elections that we're covering, uh, going deeper down the ballot, covering more total offices, so breadth of ballot as well. So there's, uh, there's a lot of really exciting things I, I can't imagine what the next 15 years will bring. Yeah, I'm very excited, especially more ballot measures. That'll be fun to cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then finally, the last question I have for you is related to Tim Ferriss, because I know you're a big fan of his. It's a I typical am. Yeah, it's a typical Ferris question. If Ballotpedia were to buy a bunch of billboards across the country, what would they say? That is really a fun one. And I do have a copy of Tools for Titans on my bookshelf right now, just sitting there. If you've never read it, good book to just kind of flip through frequently. Maybe one day we'll have him on the show or he'll have us on his show. He has a lot more listeners. So <laughs> I think my billboard, when he loves this question, I think my billboard would say, be curious, challenge yourself to step outside of your comfort zone. And I, I say that because one of my favorite aspects of the Ballopedia reader is that they're naturally very curious. If you're on Ballopedia, if you're listening to this podcast, you found our content because you, you were searching for something. You looked for something. Maybe it was who was on your ballot. Maybe it's what time your, your polls close. But there's some kind of natural question that you wanted answered and you you went searching for it uh, and you, you came across Ballotpedia for that. So 
we we think that's just such a cool feature of our readers, uh, and we love that about our readers and our listeners. Be curious. That's that's just kind of what comes to mind. I to like me. it. I like it. I think it's so true. Well, thanks for coming on and celebrating Ballopedia's fifteenth anniversary with me. We look forward to having you back for the twentieth and fiftieth and hundredth and so on. So, <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. Thanks for having me on the show today, Victoria. Thanks for coming on. And the birthday celebration continues. Ah, they grow up so fast, don't they? Why, I remember when Ballopedia was only yay tall. Time yet again for Footnote Facts with Paul Rader. Before we delve into today's topic, let's keep with the theme of BP's 15th birthday. Similarly to Jeff's segment, here are some quick hit facts dealing with the number 15 in honor of BP's anniversary. The 15th state of the Union was Kentucky on June 1st, 1792. The 15th different speaker of the U.S. House was John White, also of Kentucky. There are seven states that have a 15th congressional district. As I said in the previous episode, 15 states have a semi-closed primary for congressional and state-level elections for at least one party. And there have been 15 vice presidents that later became president. Now, back to regularly scheduled programming. The topic, how states track voter data. Today's question, what does the undeclared designation of a registered voter in Alaska mean? Stick around and find out. So states do not just differ in election administration, voter registration policies, etc. They also track voter data differently. Some don't even track voters' party affiliation. In fact, 19 states do not do so. But otherwise, you can generally look up how many voters belong to each party in a state. And in those states, as of September, October 2022, there are 48 million Democrats, 36.4 million Republicans, 35.3 million that are unaffiliated with a party, and 4 million with other political parties. Now, how much more data you can find on voters, and whether that is publicly available information and or purchasable, varies much more between states. And this was talked about somewhat a couple episodes ago about the availability of state voter files. Many Department of Elections websites for states have general overarching data on voters. And if they track the party affiliation of voters, statewide totals for each party or unaffiliated voters will be available. And they might even have certain other general data available like race, age, gender, and those might even be broken up by something like congressional district. And some city and county websites will also have some of this data publicly available. But if you want to get much more in-depth, specific data about voters, you're probably going to have to pony up. Such data almost always has voters' physical addresses, but can also include things like birth year, phone number, and when they voted before. Not who they voted before, though. That's not publicly available. Campaigns often buy these lists so that they can do what is called micro-targeting of voters. A few states have these lists available for free, but otherwise they cost hundreds or even thousands of dollars, even as much as $37,000 in Alabama. And who can buy them also differs. 31 states have open availability where basically anyone can buy the data. 16 states have mixed availability where only certain types of individuals or groups can buy the data. And four states have restricted availability where only specified individuals and groups can buy the data. Now, before we go back to the trivia question, one last thing. States differ as to what parties are found in each state. You can find unique third parties in some states, like the Aloha Aina Party in Hawaii and the Bread and Roses Party of Maryland. And voters unaffiliated with a party can have different names in different states, including NPAs, no party affiliates, unenrolled, or unaffiliated. Okay, so we're low on time, so rapid fire. Back to the trivia question. What does the undeclared designation of a registered voter in Alaska mean? It refers to a voter that did not make any declaration regarding party affiliation whatsoever, not even so far as to say that they are nonpartisan. They registered to vote 
and that's it. You get 1,500 points for the 15th anniversary of BP if you answered correctly. Hooray! That's it for footnote facts, so back to our host, Victoria Rose, to take us home. Thanks, Paul. If you aren't subscribed already, the Daily Brew newsletter is a great way to keep up with some of the biggest headlines making news we're covering here at Ballotpedia. Here's a highlight from Monday, September 26th edition. Republican and Democratic Party committees exist to help party candidates run their campaigns and do so through fundraising. Typically, the closer we move to an election, the more money we see being raised. And in August, the Republican National Committee, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, National Republican Senatorial Committee, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and the National Republican Congressional Committee all reported their highest disbursement numbers of the cycle. These six party committees have raised a combined total of $1.4 billion so far in the 2022 election cycle. According to the August FEC reports, the committees raised $84 million in August alone. For more stories like this, go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for the Daily Brew newsletter or to check out our other newsletters. And that's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Jeff and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week for a new episode. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, or just love for Ballotpedia, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. 